Psalm number 51 tonight. The book of Psalm. The 51st chapter. Good to be in church. And uh, Lord enjoying the good singing as always. Psalm number 51. While you're finding it, I, I was with the preacher at lunch today and we were talking about the different types of meetings that you can have. At our church, we have three um, regular meetings a year, annual meetings. Uh, in January, we have what we call Emerald Coast Jubilee. Have some of the same preachers you have. Brother Bo Wagner was here. Brother Joe Arthur was with us. Brother Luke Lindsay, the Lindsay family. And Jubilee meeting is really, it's really meant a time to come in and just preach and sing and shout and rejoice and to see how high we can get and get us juiced up for the year. That's the purpose of Jubilee. In April of every year, we have a Bible conference. I'll bring in about four men. We'll go for four nights, two preachers a night. And I try to bring in men that are just solid, expositional, verse-by-verse Bible preachers. We don't do a lot of special singing. It is heavy emphasis on preaching. It is Bible conference. Then in September every year, we have our missions conference and uh, bring in quite a few missionaries. And in fact, one of your men, Brother Matthew Frank, will be with us this year at our mission conference. And that's a time to get a burden for missions and make a commitment to faith promise and what we're going to do in that area. And so every meeting has a different purpose. It takes on a different nature and a different character. So Brother Gravely scheduled a week of revival meetings. And revival really is a word that has been maybe overused or misused. It's a word that kind of becomes a catch-all for just everything. But what is revival? Revival is a return. It's a renewal is what it is. It indicates that there may be something in my heart that's not right. Or it may indicate I just want to be closer to the Lord. Revival. But there are certain things that you must have in order to have revival. Last night we preached on those onlys in our life. Boy, you've got to give those things to the Lord if you're going to have revival. You can't, if, if the Lord pinpoints your heart about something and you won't get that right, then you're not going to have revival. And I struggled really between two different messages and really the song, The Secret Place, really confirmed for me this is the direction that we need to go tonight because if you're going to have revival in your heart, in your heart, if you're going to have revival, you cannot have it without repentance. Repentance is the road yes, sir. to revival. And the Lord's placed that upon my heart tonight. In Psalm number 51 in verse 1, David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to and to the multitude of thy tender mercies blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I should be clean. Wash me and I should be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones 
which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Every denomination or religion has certain doctrines that they emphasize over most any other doctrine. And they also have certain doctrines that they see in other churches or religions that, that they would vigorously fight against. Every, every denomination has a doctrine that another church believes that they would consider rank heresy because it goes against everything that they believe. For example, the Catholic Church is built on a salvation by sacraments system. If you perform the sacraments, then you may just possibly go to heaven. And if you believe in a sacrament salvation system, then justification by faith alone, salvation by grace and not by works, that, that really goes against works salvation. So the Catholic Church would really fight against salvation by faith. In fact, the phrase, the just shall live by faith, is, is the phrase that, that launched the Protestant Reformation that broke the grip of the Roman Catholic Church over Europe in the 16th century. The Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe that their greatest heresy is in the person of Jesus Christ. They say that he is a God, but he's not almighty God. In one breath, they will say that there is only one true God, and then with the next breath, they say that Jesus is a lesser God. Well, if he's a lesser God, is he a true God or is he a false God? Which one is he? And so they, they, they hate the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, one with the Father, eternal Son of God, fully man, yet fully God. Islam is built upon Allah as God, Muhammad as his prophet. And so the Jehovah God of the Old Testament is a doctrine that, that they would hate. They, they would say that Trinitarians are polytheists. They hate the doctrine of the Trinity. So every denomination has a doctrine that they would vigorously fight against. I asked my son Jacob several weeks ago, I, I said, what do you think would be the most hated doctrine in the independent fundamental Baptist movement of today? And I believe that he nailed it. I believe that one of the most hated doctrines in our independent Baptist movement is the doctrine of repentance. Amen. Now, our movement has had doctrinal disputes over the decades, and many of them were worth fighting for. We, we fought the fight over the inspiration of the Bible. That's worth fighting for. We fought the fight over pre-tribulationalism and premillennialism and, and dispensation versus covenant theology. But the number one doctrinal debate in independent Baptist churches right now is over repentance for salvation. Now, now, you would not think that is so because the Bible really is very clear. It's not ambiguous. The Bible is very clear that repentance and faith are both required for a man to be saved. In fact, Jesus himself said that except a man repent, ye shall all likewise perish. God's not willing that any should perish. Then what's the alternative? That all should come to repentance. Now, now, no Baptist preacher would, would stand and say that you do not have to repent in order to be saved. But here's what a preacher would say, is that you don't have to repent of sins in order to be saved. 
And the way that you get around that is you redefine repentance. That, that basically repentance is turning from unbelief to belief. The Bible actually has a word for that. It is called faith. But if you redefine repentance, then you can deal with it without having to deal with any sin and there's no conviction in it. There, there's no dealing with sin. There, there is nothing, nothing but lip service to the doctrine of repentance. I believe, I believe it is one of the things that has done one of the greatest harms for our Baptist churches is getting rid of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repentance from sin. I pulled this off of a website and I'll not name the church. You might would recognize it. And on their Independent Baptist Church website, here is the gospel, all right? Now, now listen closely. Do you ever wonder what the point of everything is? You work hard, you try to do what you think is right for yourself and those around you, and you do your best to be happy and keep a smile. But at the end of the day, you're left tired you wonder when things will turn around and everything, everyone will just get along and you cringe knowing that life is short and mostly difficult. Maybe you even wonder what will happen when this life is over. Well, the good news is that God has given us the Bible to help us know why life is so challenging and to help us understand what to expect when it's ended. The Bible even helps us know what simple thing we can do today to find real and lasting joy that nothing else seems able to provide. Now, the statement is true, but here's what it tells you. The point of salvation is not that you're a sinner. It is not that Romans 3 applies to you. It is not that God is going to send you to hell justly for your sin. No, no, the point of the gospel is not that you have violated the commandments of God. It is not that you have an Adamic sin nature. It is not that you are a wicked and vile sinner. No, the point of it is that life is hard. You're having a tough time and you can't smile, but God has this wonderful little plan in the Bible and he wants to take care of all of that for you. And so if I have enough sales technique, I should be able to get you to make a profession of faith and I never have to say a thing about your sin. All I have to do is promise you this amazing life that God offers you through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can say a little prayer and you can feel good and you can have this wonderful life. And nobody has to get offended by telling you that you are a vile sinner. You don't have to hear about all the bad things about you. You don't have to repent after you sin. You just repeat after me. You say this little prayer. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to smile and he wants you to be happy. And there are thousands of churches that have filled their pews with baptized pagans because they preach a gospel without repentance and they're making a profession and they've never felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've never come under conviction for their sin. They've never felt sorrow for their sin. And I'm saying tonight that's contrary to the word of God. Now, now, now if you want to know what true Old-fashioned repentance looks like Psalms 51 is the best chapter that you can go to. It is my favorite psalm. I, I love this chapter. I come back to it more than, and it's strange because it is a penitential psalm. Now don't die on me, but there's not glory in it. It's not about praise and shout to God. That's not what it's about. It is the cry of a man who has committed a grievous sin against God he has felt the pain of chastisement and the sorrow of his guilt and he begs God for forgiveness and restoration. Now, if you look at it, there's an inscription. Perhaps it is in your Bible. It is in mine. Here's the inscription at the heading. 
to the chief musician. Now that's strange. The chief musician, here, here's what it means. It means that David wrote it and he gave it to his chief musician to set it to music to be used in public worship. Now this is the most personal. This is the most private. This is the most emotional of all of his songs. When he writes it, he's not writing to you. He is writing to God alone. It is words that he would not speak out loud. There have been times when I've been on an altar praying and there are men around me and I pray out loud. But if I need to confess, I'll lower my voice. I don't want you to hear what I need to confess to God for. But he gives it to the chief musician for public worship. I would expect it would be the last psalm that he would want to use for public worship. Can you imagine writing a song about the worst thing that you've ever done Give it to the song leader and say, I'd like for you to sing this on Sunday night. That's pretty much what David has done. We are so protective of our dignity and and our image, but David, he's beyond all of that now. He has spent months trying to cover up his sin, but now he is bringing it out in the open for all to see. The setting of the psalm, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after He had gone in to Bathsheba. It takes us to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and then has conspired to have Uriah, her husband, killed in the battle. It is the one chapter in David's life that he would like to erase. There is one incident that he came to regret more than any other and it causes him more pain, more heartache than any other thing that he ever did. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. It is the story of how that sin was conceived. Please understand, David did not just fall into sin. He walked into it with his eyes wide open. He didn't sin by ignorance. He didn't sin by accident. He wasn't trapped. He sinned because he wanted to. And that fateful day was not the first day that lust had controlled his thoughts. It is not the first day that he fantasized about being with another man's wife. The sin that was initiated on the rooftop, that was consummated in the bedroom, that sin actually began in his heart long before that day. It is the story of how that sin was conceived. It is the story of how sin was committed. David probably thought he would never walk down the path of adultery. If you could have told him a day before that, David, this is what you're going to do, David would have said, not me. If you would have told him how terrible his sin would be and the consequences that he's going to reap through his family, David would have said, it will never happen to me. But in a moment, in a moment, he committed that which had been lurking in his heart for all of those years. That that is why the Bible says that you and I should abstain from all appearance, appearance, appearance of evil. That is why the Bible says that you should put no confidence in the flesh because lurking in your heart is the propensity to dark, dark evil. And Jesus said, watch. And he said, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The sin is committed. It is the story of how sin is conceived It is the story of how sin is committed. It is the story of how sin is covered. 
after David has committed that sin with Bathsheba, learns that she is pregnant, puts Uriah on the forefront of the battle where surely he will be killed. Bathsheba is married to this man. He's an honorable man. He's a good man. David sends the letter home and tries to get David to try to get Bathsheba or Uriah to come home and to lie with his wife, and Uriah will not do it. Finally, he sends the letter to Joab, and he's trying to cover up that sin, is what he's trying to do. It is the story of how that sin is conceived. It is the story of how sin was confronted. The prophet Nathan comes to David, tells him a parable about a rich man and a poor man. It has probably been close to six months since the affair. Bathsheba is carrying the child. Uriah has been dead and David has not confessed. That sin is smoldering in his heart. David gets angry at this fictional rich man. And here's what David says. David says that, that, that he's gonna pay fourfold. Or David says that this man is going to die. Now think about this. All that he did was steal an animal. That is not a capital offense. Restitution is fourfold. And what David does is he proclaims a stiffer penalty than even the law does. Because he sees somebody else's fault, but he doesn't see his own fault. How easy it is to be convicted of somebody else's sin. It is the story of how sin is confronted. It is the story of how sin is chastened. Nathan, that prophet, points his bony finger to David and says, David, thou art the man. You have violated four commands, coveting and adultery and bearing false witness and, and murder and the penalty that you will pay is fourfold. And for the rest of David's life, for the rest of his life, he's going to feel the pain of one tragedy after another, after another. It is the story of how sin was confessed. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And with six words, David comes clean. He says, I am the man. I've nowhere to hide. I've nowhere to run. I've no more excuses. I, I'm coming clean with God. I'm the man. And out of that experience, David writes two Psalms. He writes Psalm 32, he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 32 is more doctrinal. Psalm 51 is more emotional. It is a very, it is a very transparent Psalm. And the theme is repentance. This is what the doctrine of repentance looks like. Yes. Now I'll tell you three things about repentance and I'll, I'll get to my outline just as quickly as I can. I believe that repentance involves three things. I believe that repentance involves knowledge, the knowledge of sin. Repentance always begins with an awakening to your sin, an acknowledgement that you have sinned against God. No excuses, no arguments, no cover-ups. This sounds too simplistic, but you cannot repent of something that you don't know you're guilty of. The formula is never, Lord, if I've sinned. The formula is, Lord, if I'm not saved. That is never the formula. No, no, you come to realization that all of the good things that you thought about yourself, they're wrong. All the bad things God says about you, they're true. It involves the mind, knowledge of sin. I tell you that repentance involves the emotions that is sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. Repentance is born out of a sorrowful there's a lot of men that know they're sinners. 
that know they're unfit for heaven and they're laughing their way to hell. We, we've seen people walking out, popping bubble gum and making a face with faith and there was no conviction, there is no sorrow. It involves the mind, knowledge of sin. It involves, it involves the emotions, sorrow for sin. But, but here, here's where the rubber meets the road. And don't lose, don't lose me now, but repentance involves the, the wheel that is a turning from sin. It, 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 it is mental, it is emotional, it is volitional. And where the debate in independent Baptist churches come is in defining repentance. And those who, who oppose the doctrine say, well, well, you're preaching a work salvation, that you have to do something in order to be saved. If I stood here tonight and I said that you have to quit drinking in order to be saved, that's work salvation. If I said tonight that you have to quit shacking up in order to be saved, that is works. I am adding something to salvation. But I'm telling you that salvation repentance is turning from something to something. Paul told the Thessalonians how you turned to God from idols. You cannot turn to God without turning from idols. You cannot turn to the Savior without turning from your sin. And in the modern gospel, it, it waters that down and it wants to leave you in your sin and we'll deal with that after we have signed the card and made a profession of faith. But, but repentance is not just to be broken over your sin. Repentance is to be broken from your sin. Oh, I wish you'd help me tonight. I, I, I believe that I'm right. Repentance, repentance is a change of heart. It is a change of mind. It is a change of direction. It is a change of will. It is a change of desire. It is a change of belief. It is a change of intent. It is a change of action. Repentance is a change is what it is. When God repented, he didn't do what he was going to do. That's the doctrine of repentance. We've lost it in our churches. But I'm going to tell you that you're not going to have revival in your heart without the matter of repentance. Now let me show you. Let me show you the marks of repentance in Psalms 51. I hurry. And repentance isn't just for a lost man that needs to be saved. But when a man has sinned and grieved God, the only remedy that you have is to fall on your face before God and say, God, I'm sorry. And what a wonderful promise that if, if, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I, I look at David's example of repentance, and I, I give you four thoughts tonight for you to think about. What is the mark of true repentance? And here's the first one. David is concerned with sin's guilt, not its consequence. He is concerned with sin's guilt, not its consequence. Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, David, here's the punishment. The punishment for your sin is fourfold. You will live the rest of your life under God's discipline. I believe that one day a servant knocked on David's door and came into the king's chamber and said, Sir, I, I hate to breathe the bearer of bad news, but the child that Bathsheba had has died. And God said, David, that's one. And one day the servant came and knocked on David's door and he came into the king's chamber and said, Sir, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but your son Amnon has raped Tamar. And I believe God said, David, that's two. And one day the servant knocked on David's door and said, Sir, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but 
your son Absalom has murdered Amnon. And I believe that God said, David, that's three. And one day the servant knocked on David's door and said, Sir, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but your son Absalom was found out there hanging by his hair and he's dead. And I believe that God said, David, that's four. The consequences of sin. But read Psalm 51. David doesn't speak of any of that. Look how he says it in verse 2. Wash me throughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression, my sin. My sin is ever before me against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He never asked God to take away the chastisement. He, he, never, he never asked God not to punish him anymore. He never asked God to reverse the curse. He laments the guilt of his sin, not the consequences. The only consequences that he mentions in Psalm 51 are spiritual consequences. The consequences that I regret are the, are the consequences between me and God. So some people, some people are only sorry that they got caught or they're only sorry for what that sin is going to cost them. Several years ago, I had a couple call me in the middle of the night, 2.30 2 in the morning. It's never a good call at 2.30 in the morning. And a couple calls me, and they are in dire straits. She had found some emails on his computer and found some links, and he was arranging to meet prostitutes, a church member is what he was doing. And so I met them at Waffle House in the middle of the night, and I listened to him, and I listened to her. And this guy at Waffle House in the middle of the night He's on his knees on the floor. He's begging her. He's moaning. He's wailing. He's crying. He's carrying on. And I thought, he's really repentant. But he really wasn't. He was sorry that he got caught. He was sorry she's going to leave him. He was sorry I'm going to lose custody of me and my kids. That's what he was sorry. It was not about his sin. It's he realized that he's blown it and he's ruined his life and the consequences of that sin was what had him, not the guilt. Had a man in my church years ago, and um, he, he was married, married to a girl. He, he, he suspected that she had have an affair, and so he hired a private investigator, and, and, and they trailed her for several months. And one day he comes into my office, and he's got four or five boxes. And he sets these boxes on my desk, and they're full of phone records and videos and pictures and he has got phone records and text messages. He's got pictures of her meeting this guy. With, and I mean, it is, I mean, it is black and white. And so I take all those boxes with him, and I take another man, and we go over to her house. And I walk in, and I set all of those boxes there on the coffee table. And she starts to look at him. She knows immediately what it is. She begins to cry, begins to beg for forgiveness. But not one time did she ever mention her sin. No, the nice house. He's going to leave me. The kids. It is the consequences of it. But true repentance is concerned with sin's guilt, not its consequences. In Psalm 51, there's a second thing. And that it is that David's focus is upward, not inward. You see, most counseling done today is to get you to focus on yourself. You're not that bad of a person. Really, you just need to forgive yourself. 
You need to have more self-esteem. You, you, you're a good person. Don't, don't beat yourself up over a little mistake. And all of the attention is on how it makes you feel. But the heart of a person that is truly repentant is turned toward God, not toward self. It is not what it has done to me. It is what it has done to God. And, and the shame and the grief will be in the acknowledgement that it is God that I have offended. And the great desire of the heart is to run to God, not from God. It's interesting that David has offended God. He says in verse four, against thee, the only have I sinned. He's offended God, but it is God that he desires more than anything else. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the foremost thought in his mind. And a man who only shows remorse will try to avoid God. Skip church, stay away. But a man with a truly repentant heart, he runs to God. You ever seen a little child get disciplined by his father? And you know what he wants to do right after? He wants to climb right back up into the lap of his father. I got to know that you're not mad at me. I got to know that you still love me. I got to know that everything is okay. I'm sorry for what I've done. I've been punished. Now the punishment over. But, but, but in spite of the punishment, I, I, I still want you to be my daddy. I, I still want to be your son. I, I still want that relationship. Boy, that's, that's the heart of the repentant. I, I want to know. I want to know that everything with my father is all right. True repentance it focuses on God, not, not inward. Here's the third one. Is that David sought pardon, not pity. No excuses. Amen. No whiff of, yes, I did, but no. He says, my transgressions. He says in verse 3, my sin. He says, mine iniquity, my sin. He says, have I sinned? He says in verse number 5, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that, that he was conceived of an illicit affair. No, he's saying that, that he inherited his sin nature from birth. I sin because that's who I am. That's why I am. I, I, I am a sinner. And he's not using it as an excuse. He's not saying it's not my fault. He says, I was born this way. He said, what, how I live, it is, it, is, it, is, it is because of my character. He's tracing the filth all the way back to its core. He says, the core of my being is depraved. No excuses. This is how I am. If you, if you come to the altar with one justification for your sin, you've wasted your time. If you cling to one explanation, if you still have one out, if you still have one excuse, if you still have to hold on to your self-esteem and your self-respect, then you don't know repentance. Got a lady in our church and her husband claims to be saved. I, I don't believe that he is. And boy, I've been to his house a number of times trying to witness to him. His name is John. And every time I go to his house and sit down and talk to him, he's had some health problems and it gives me an excuse to be in his home. And every time I, I try to open the door for the gospel. And he's a religious man. He's been in church. He knows the talk. But, but, he, but you just tell. You just tell. There's something wrong there. 
And every time, every time that I, I try to approach the subject, his self-righteousness, it just rises up in indignation and, and he begins to boast of his goodness and he, and he just shuts the door. And, and I cannot get past his self I can't get past that. If I could ever get past his self-righteousness for, for one time, then I think that we could go somewhere. But he, but he puts that up, that self-righteousness. And will not allow him to see God. True repentance doesn't say, I, I can't believe I did that. True repentance doesn't say, you know, that's not really me. True repentance leaves all of that behind and says, this is the wretch that I am. Here's the fourth thing. Here's David prays for a cleansing, not a cover-up. He says, he says in verse number one, blot out my transgressions. Lord, would you erase it from the books? Could you somehow make it where there's no trace of that? He says in verse two, wash me throughly from mine iniquity. That sin has left a dirty stain. Can you wash that out? He says, he says, cleanse me from my sin. That word cleansing, a word of purification, I see it as a blight, like a leprosy. Lord, Lord, can you cleanse me of that? He says in verse number seven, he says, purge me with his, I should be clean. Wash me, I should be whiter than snow. He says in verse nine, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. He's not content just to have God say, I forgive you. No, I want to know that every trace of that defilement has been cleansed. I want to be clean. And if washing will not do, then try some other process. And if water won't do, then try fire. Let anything be tried, but I must be clean. And he never prays. He never prays, don't let anybody find out about this. He wants cleansing, not a cover-up. The marks of repentance. It is to be concerned with sin's guilt, not its consequence. It is to be focused on the upward, not the inward. It is to seek pardon, not pity. It is to pray for cleansing, not a cover-up. I ask you on this Tuesday night church crowd, have you ever repented of your sins. The option that God gives you, it is repent or it is perish. And there is no amount, there is no amount of changing the doctrine, changing the definition to get rid of it. When you stand before God, there'll be no preacher standing next to you to say, well, now this is what God really meant. You stand before God, it is repent or perish. If you are here tonight, a church member, a visitor, and if you are not saved tonight, you need to cry out to God for forgiveness of sin. And if you will lay aside all of your self-righteousness and all of your self-esteem and all of your dignity and all of your self-defense, if you will lay all of that aside and if you'll lay all aside all of your good deeds and all of your religion and all of your merit and all the nice things that can be said about you and if you will come to God and do two things, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and that is the only payment available and if you will repent with a broken heart of your sin, I'm gonna say, God will save you. He'll save you tonight. But, but I wonder tonight, I wonder tonight, how is your fellowship with Christ? Would you live another day 
with unconfessed sin in your heart. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of that spirit, that attitude, that thing, would you just come clean with God and say, Lord, I don't want that in my life. We're, we're praying for revival. You cannot have revival without repentance. You say, I don't have anything to repent of. That's great. You don't need revival. If you don't have anything to repent of tonight, you're as close to God as you can be. You don't need revival. And it may be that you don't have a specific sin to confess, but I want that spirit to rule my life. I, I don't want to develop a hard, accusing heart. I want to keep a short account with God. So Lord, you search my heart and you see if there's some wicked way in me. Because I know me. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And there's nothing more precious to me than your smile and your fellowship and your touch. So you search me. And may I be quick to fall on my face and say, Lord, no excuses, no cover-ups. It's me. It's me. Heavenly Father, help us tonight. No revival without repentance. Give us that spirit of brokenness, that spirit of humility, to be done with the excuses, to be done with the image, just to come clean with you. I pray in my own life tonight. You search my heart. You know what's there. You know the people tonight that I have a problem with. You know the things that entered to my mind. You know the inconsistencies. And I don't want to preach with that. I don't want to live with that. I want that sweetness, that intimacy of fellowship with you. So give me the heart of David. Psalm 51. God speaks to your heart somewhere on this altar. I, I encourage you just to come tonight. Just come. Just come on this altar.